But you've come to hear from the Lord this morning, and I know that, so uh, I won't hold back any longer. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, you might pay to turn there with me to Psalm 86, verses uh, 1 to 10. And I'm going to be using the New American Standard Bible, and uh, so it might be a bit different to what you're using, but hopefully you'll get the gist of it. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you this morning through our Lord Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit, Lord, to give you praise and thanks and to bring glory to your great and wonderful name. We come now, Lord, as people who have a great need for your input into our minds and into our hearts and into our lives through your word and the illumination of it. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would make sense of this text to us this morning so that even the least among us, Lord, would be able to comprehend it in such a way that their life will be changed. Well, Father, we pray that you would be magnified and glorified in the face of Jesus Christ and that, Lord, he would be exalted amongst us this morning. So we do ask that you would bless your word to, to us. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Um, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke Jesus asked his disciples this question Who do people say that I am? You know the answer to that, don't you? But many at that time didn't And so they responded by saying John the Baptist, Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets In other words, many at that time had absolutely no idea who Jesus was. Now some might say, well, how silly are they? Could they not see that he was indeed Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and did they not believe his claims? You know, we have the benefit, don't we, of the the written word of God, and also history. And most of all, we have the gift of faith, Therefore, we can easily determine that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But how would we have feared if we were the people of that time? And Jesus asked us, who do people say that I am? We would have recognised him to be the Christ. Or would we have mistaken him also, just like the others? Maybe we would have thought he was one of the prophets, or even worse, he he was a false prophet. How would we have feared? To be honest with you, I fear that there are many in Christian churches today who would not recognise Christ. And I believe my fear is justified because there are many in the Christian church who live as if they don't know Christ. Oh, they might know the basics, they might know about Easter and Christmas, and they might know about the death, burial and resurrection, and they could probably add a few more interesting facts to that list. But do they know Christ? Some might even say, oh, that stuff, that, that's for the scholars, and for pastors and those who like reading books, but we have a simple faith. Therefore, we only need to know the simple things. Well, dear friends, that response might work for you in Sunday school. However, it will never suffice in the classroom of men and women who long to go deeper, 
and to grow stronger in their faith and in their knowledge of the Lord. Because throughout the Bible we are exhorted to study, to show thyself a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who rightly divides the word of truth. And we have such pleas as that to the Philippians to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And of Peter who said, like newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word. Why? So that by it you may grow. But brothers and sisters, if you have any thought that a simple faith is satisfactory, then I have news for you. It's one thing to know about someone, but it's another thing altogether to know someone. You see, I know about Anthony Albanese. Do you know about Anthony Albanese? Yep, he's our (laughs) Prime Minister, right? That's Anthony Albanese. He's our Prime Minister. But I don't know him personally. And I'm guessing some of you here this morning don't know him personally. And then there's my beautiful wife over here, Milani. I know her personally. And I know she loves the Lord. And I know she loves reading His Word. And I know she loves her family. And I know what annoys her. It's usually me. (laughs) And I know what pleases her. In fact, I would say that with the exception of the Lord Himself, I know her more than anyone else. And why? Because I've spent time with her. Living with her. Getting to know her. And likewise her with me. So that we know what calms one another's souls in times of trouble. And we know what brings each other comfort in trying times. You see, we don't just know about each other, but we know each other intimately. Which is crucial, right, to any relationship which longs for depth. And might I say that it is of extreme importance when it comes to a Christian relationship between the Lord and his follower. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus alluded to this knowledge. Well, it's not there, but if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. John 10, 14, Jesus alluded to this knowledge when he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Now, this whole statement is one which speaks of knowledge based on relationship. You see, the Lord is the good shepherd because he knows his sheep intimately as opposed to the bad shepherd, right, who who doesn't know his sheep intimately. And here we also see that this intimate knowledge is mutual because Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me. In fact, the words know used here in John 10 are the Greek word uh, which is used sometimes as an idiom for uh, intimate and sexual relationships, such as in Matthew 1.25, where the King James Bible says that Joseph knew her not. In other words, he had not had intimacy with Mary. And notice that Jesus didn't say, I know my own, and that's all that's needed, right? But he qualified the relationship by adding, and my own. Know me. 
Therefore, for anyone to be known by Christ, there is also the expectation that they know Him like He knows them intimately. And sadly, that is foreign for many who claim to be of Christ. For some are happy to be known by Him, but draw the line when it comes to their commitment to Him. And sadly, for those who are like this, when they suffer, they have no knowledge of the Lord of the Sabbath who is their rest in times of suffering, or they have no knowledge of the Lord Almighty, who is their strength in times of weakness, or they have no knowledge of the joy of the Lord, who is their joy in times of sadness, so that when they suffer, and when they face trials and challenges in life, rather than to run to the wellspring of all life, they settle for the meagre and temporal comforts of this world. Brothers and sisters, do you know him? Do you know how great and mighty he is? Do you know that in your trials and suffering, he is your strength? And he is your shelter in a time of storm? Do you know that in those moments of deep loneliness or fear, he is there in your midst, never to leave you nor forsake you? Do you know him? Or you say, but I know him. And I've spent many years studying him and therefore I know all there is to know about him, right? Well, before you go on entertaining that thought any further, listen to what the Apostle Paul said when writing to the church at Rome. Romans 11, 33 to 36. He said, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counsellor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again or from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. In commenting on this passage, H.P. Giles Jr. noted that God is deep, but his truth is shallow enough that his children can come and get a drink without the fear of drowning. Yet he is so deep that scholars can dive in and never plumb his depths. And yet he demands that they dive. And again, some might say, oh dear brother, but I have a simple faith and need only a simple faith to get by. And to that I would add, oh, but a simple faith is not enough to get the troubled, suffering child through the furnace of trials, persecution, grief and pain. No, what is needed is a deeper knowledge of God so that the temptation to cling to this world and the hopelessness it offers will flee from you. Therefore, in Psalm 86, what we see is such a man. A man who had become an expert in affliction and trouble. And we see a man who had come to know his Lord to be good and gracious, merciful and kind. Therefore, David prayed the prayer of a troubled, needy soul to a mighty God. And he cried out to the Lord as a child would cry out to its father or mother. 
Because like a child knows its mother and father will come to its aid in times of need, David knew that the Lord would come to him. Because the Lord was his help in times of trouble. Now it's uncertain exactly what events in his life moved him to pray this prayer. Some believe that it was probably during the time that he was being hunted down by King Saul and and the context seems to fit that. But whatever it was, whatever event it was, whether it was the pain of watching his family spiral into immorality and destruction, or maybe it was the guilt and burden of having sinned against the Lord when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and organised the murder of her husband, or maybe it was when he faced off against Goliath, but whatever it was, there were many occasions in his life which gave him reason to pray to the Lord in distress and need. Listen to how he opens his prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Notice in verse 1 we have a plea. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. We see here the desperation of David to plead with the Lord to turn his attention toward him and to come to his aid. Then we have the reason for why David pleads with the Lord, for I am afflicted. And needy, he said. And you know, that is always a good time, is it not, to cry out to the Lord when we are afflicted and needy. And dare I say, there have been many a godly man and woman who have fallen on their knee in such times, and there will be, I trust, many more to come. And then notice in verse 2, though, through, through to verse 4, how the pleas continue. Preserve my soul, be gracious to me, make glad the soul of your servant. Why? Why should God save David from his affliction? Why should God preserve him and be gracious to him? Was it because David had earned God's favour by living a moral lifestyle and making good choices? Oh no. We know that David's choices in morality fell short of deserving the grace and mercy of God, right? And David knew this as well. And so he appeals to the Lord according to his position, his standing in the Lord rather than to his morality. He said, for I am a godly man who trusts in you, who cries to you all day long and who lifts his soul toward you. Was that any reason for God to come to one's aid? Because I am a godly man. I trust in you. Amen. Of course it is. Because for anyone to be godly, they must be a child of God. And therefore David appeals to God's election. That David was chosen of God and was therefore without any doubt a child of God. Not because of his morality, 
but because of God's election. You see, that's what it means to be godly. It's the opposite to being, come on you clever people, ungodly. And to be ungodly is to be without God. It's what a man or woman are who aren't saved. They are ungodly. Full stop. Not simply because of their behaviour, but simply because of their relationship to God. And their behaviour just proves it. Not simply because of their immoral behaviour and lifestyle, but purely because they are not saved, they are not regenerated, and therefore they are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so when the Bible uses the term godly, it uses it as a relational term, as much as it does a behavioural term. Because to be godly can only speak of those who are in relationship to the Lord of the Bible. And as such, he will come to your aid. Because he is your father. And you are his child. And that he promises. As Jesus once said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, there's a relationship, give what is good to those who ask him? And then notice that the structure changes in Psalm 86, from pleas of help to affirmations, affirming the goodness of God. In other words, David not only appeals to the Lord on the grounds of their relationship, but he also appeals to the character of God, that he is good. As we heard in our prayer this morning, the Lord is good, right? He's good. That's who he is. He's good. Regardless of the situation in the world, our God is good. For you, Lord, verse 5, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. My dear friends, no one can ever say that the Lord is not good because by his testimony alone, the Lord declares his goodness and that should be enough. Amen. Yet for anyone to even suggest that the Lord is not good is a total miscalculation on their behalf because they are calculating goodness by their own deficient definition. However, Thomas Manton, an old English Puritan, once said, He is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. But he is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. 
He is eternally and immutably good for He cannot be less good than He is. Amen. The Lord is good. Therefore David appealed to the goodness of God and therefore knowing that God is intrinsically good, David's pleas exhibit a sense of confidence, believing the Lord will come to his aid and answer him in time, in his time of distress, because God is good. And therefore he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. How many times have you prayed like this? And why did you pray like this? Because you know, because you know like David knew that the only one who can preserve your soul in troubled times is our infinitely almighty, powerful God. Why else do we pray to Him? Because we know Him to be such. That He is infinitely almighty powerful. You see, knowing Him makes all the difference in how you pray. Knowing Him makes all the difference in how you will weather the storm of trials and pain. So what did David know about Him? Verse 8 of Psalm 86 tells us exactly what David knew about the Lord when he said, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You know, we could line up the mightiest, most powerful and grandest thing that this world has to offer. And that people might turn to for hope, for joy, for comfort, for love, for attention for affection, for security, for pleasure. And the psalmist tells us that all these things put together come crashing down when compared to the Lord. Why? Because there is no one like Him. Reflecting on how the Lord had led the Israelites out of Egypt and how He led them through the Red Sea, Moses asked the question, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And the only way Moses or anyone else could respond is to say, There is no one like you, our Lord. Are you familiar with the term seity or saity? Uh, this is an interesting word for two reasons or maybe three reasons it's not found in your Bibles you won't find it in your Bible the other two reasons is first that it's one of those words many of us have never seen or, or heard before and second the reason second reason why we've probably never seen or heard this word before is it be, because it means self-existing that's what it means a it means self-existing in layman terms, it means that anything that is of a satiety exists in and of itself. Right? Do you get it? It exists in and of itself. It doesn't need anything to contribute to its existence. Nothing outside of a self-existing thing contributes to its existence. Question. What things or how many things in the universe can you name which have a satiety? 
that are self-existing. Any idea? I'm sure you're thinking, God, right? God. Well, if you answer God only, only God, then you are totally correct. God is the only being, get this, the only being in all the universe who has a saiety. That is why this word is rare. Because it can only be attributed to God alone. God is self-existing. He doesn't have anything outside of him to contribute to him, to make him exist. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the entire universe has a saiety except the Lord. The Lord alone is self-existing. In fact, in Genesis 1, we read this in the beginning. God. God. In the beginning, God. Before anything else existed, there was God. Arthur Pink on the solitariness of God says this, There was a time, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning God, there was no heaven, where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting During eternity past, God was all alone, was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them when he did added nothing to God, essentially. He changes not, Malachi 3.6. Therefore his essential glory can never be, uh, can be neither augmented nor diminished. Moses in his prayer in Psalm 90 confirms pink sentiments when Moses prayed, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so God is a saviour, self-existing, and you know this has huge ramifications for us. Because it means since God is self-existing, then everything other than God exists by something or someone other than itself. In fact, I reckon if we traced everything back to its origin, then our tracks would conclude at the feet of God. Because all things owe their existence to God and nothing exists outside of God's common grace and mercy. And the ramification is this, all creation, past, present and future from the tiniest atom to the loftiest mountain, has its existence in the triune God of the universe. Therefore the psalmist says that all the heavens will declare the glory of the Lord. So David, when he penned the psalm and declared, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours, he was stating the fact that there is absolutely nothing that the universe has to offer which comes even close to comparing 
to our God. Amen? Absolutely nothing. Except the God you know. You think of the, the, the thing that gives you the greatest thrill in life. The thing that gives you the greatest joy in life. If that's not God, what is it? And you hold that up against Him. And you see what happens. In fact, take the Christian's greatest nemesis, the devil. Despite the fact that he wields great power against the Christian, he too has no existence except for God. Therefore, Colossians 1, 16-17, the Apostle Paul wrote this, as we heard earlier this morning, for in him were all things created. It's in Christ. In him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now context always governs the way we interpret all things. And so the context refers to all things created in heaven and upon the earth. Things visible and things invisible. Thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things have been created and he is before all things. So all things here means all things. Whether it be the tiniest atom or the loftiest mountain, whether it be the glorious angels or the devil himself, all things owe their existence to him. Then the Apostle Paul takes it to another level when he adds, and in him all things consist. That word consist means held together, and I think that's the version ESV uses, held together. That is all things would suddenly disintegrate, evaporate, should God decide to remove his hand from all things. You and I would suddenly disappear, evaporate, turn to dust maybe, along with every other human being, nature, the devil and his cohorts in the entire universe, should God remove his hand from all things. Now do you see how dependent we are upon God for our very existence? Do something for me. See how long you can hold your breath for. And then when you've had enough, take a deep breath and you thank God for that breath because he just gave you air to breathe. You and I depend on that. No wonder there is no one like him. And yet the problem for many in the world today, and might I add even some within the pews of churches, that judging by the way we live our lives, and judging by the choices we make, there seems to be a subconscious belief that there is indeed a greater force in this world than God. Yet God and his people of the scripture are adamant that there is none like him. And so too are his followers today. Therefore, how are we to respond to his greatness? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, urged the church there to rejoice in the Lord, to find their joy in him. And so he wrote, 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again. It's no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. The word rejoice is the Greek word kairo, which means to enjoy a state of gladness, to be delighted. It's related to the Greek word for grace, karis. Therefore, to rejoice in the Lord is the direct result and activity of the grace of God in the Christian. So when the Apostle Paul urged the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, in effect what he was saying was to to even rejoice in the Lord is a result of his grace imparted to us. You rejoice in the Lord because he imparts that to you as an act of his grace. And then notice why they could rejoice. Because compared to Christ, all things are but rubbish. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You ask Paul, Paul, do you know Christ? And he would have said, I know him. But I want to know him more so that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Peter used a similar expression twice in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he wrote this. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What was it which moved the Apostle Peter to suggest that the recipients of his letter should greatly rejoice? Even though their experience at the time was one of danger, one of harm and possible or probable persecution. What was it that that moved Peter to, to write this to them? And what is it that would move them and us to be so full of joy that we cannot even express it. Well, Peter gives us a clue when he writes, in this, right at the beginning of verse 6, he says, in this. And we would be wise to ask, in what? Well, when he writes, in this, he is pointing to something, right? Like what we would do when we would answer the question, where do people at Bethel Christian Church worship on a Sunday morning? And we would reply, In that building next door. No, we would say in this building. Therefore Peter is asking the question, in what do you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible? And he answers it by pointing his finger back to verses 1-5 and writes, in this. Therefore we need to see verses 1-5. There. Verses 1 to 5, and Peter writes, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter says in this... And this, folks, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. You know, there are many things in which a person will rejoice over, such as the, the warm embrace of a loved one following a long absence, or the welcome news of the safe arrival of a newborn child, or even the final payment on one's mortgage. But there is only one thing in the Bible which will cause a Christian to rejoice greatly and with joy inexpressible. And so Peter points to it. And he points to these things which are really only one thing and he says chosen. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And all these things Peter then sums up in verse 3 when he writes blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therein lies the inexpressible joy that the creator of the universe, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, should birth a person into new life. That the very ones he should birth we're only deserving of wrath and condemnation, but according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. If that is not a thing to rejoice greatly over, the Apostle Peter then goes on to add, in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inexpressible joy, the rejoicing at such a great level is achievable only when one has fully experienced the grace and the mercy of God in their soul and then have been by grace granted the ability to gaze upon the beauty, the splendor, the power, the majesty of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. Therefore let me say that it's one thing to gaze at the work of creation. To look at creation and say, wow, who's been to Uluru? Wow, what a sight, right? For a rock. Wow, what a big rock. Majestic, amazing. It's one thing to look at that rock and go, wow. It's another thing altogether to behold the God of this universe in the face of His Son, our Lord Jesus, and go, wow! Do you get that? 
another thing altogether to behold the Creator. And so Peter tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, which means to praise Him, to give glory to Him, to worship Him, to lay all we have and all we have attained from Him back at His feet as the rightful and only sovereign to be worshipped, adored and trusted. And so we bless our God and Father because we are blessed beyond our imagination. And we're blessed not because we find ourselves in a favourable position, in comfort and safety. You know, we have this thing, don't we? You know, because we live in Australia, we say we're blessed. So we make it about the position. We, we make being blessed all about our position, right? Don't do that. And that's biblically wrong to elevate our position that we're here in Australia above something greater. Or we think we're blessed because we have positions. We compare ourselves to Africa. People over there doing it hard and say, well, we're blessed. They're not. So we make the blessing all about possessions, right? Position and possessions. No, folks, we are blessed because God is great and we are in Christ. And as such, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing that heaven provides according to Ephesians chapter 1. Be it forgiveness of sin, it's ours in Christ. Be it grace and mercy for salvation, it's ours in Christ. Be it love beyond our comprehension, it's ours in Christ. We are blessed because we are in Christ so that no matter what our position or our possession we can say with the scripture that we are blessed. So when the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter said that they rejoiced in the Lord, they had one thought on their mind. Their rejoicing was great because of the greatness of the one in which their joy was found. And so David prayed, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God wrote this on January the 7th 1855 the minister of New Park Street Chapel Southwark England opened his morning sermon as follows it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man I will not oppose the idea but I believe it's equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, 
finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And, whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Though there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound, in musing on the Father there is a quietus for every grief. And in the, in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. These words spoken over a century ago by C.H. Spurgeon were true then and they are true now.